Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 12, if you give your attention to the reading of God's word. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now let's go to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, merciful and gracious God, Lord, we bow our hearts before you today and we come asking that you would prepare us to receive your word. And we come asking that what the, what the psalmist said would be true in our hearts as well, that our souls would be consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit, that he would illuminate your word to our hearts. Lord, that as we open up your word this afternoon, we would see Christ, and in seeing him, Lord, we would come and to behold his glory and his person and his beauty more than we ever have before. We might come in turn to love him more than we ever have, more wholeheartedly, more fully. We might come to obey him more sincerely and more completely than we ever have. But if any of this is to be true, If we are to change in any way, you must come and work in us. So we pray, Lord. We believe, help our unbelief, come and do a work among your people. In Jesus' name, amen.
We are returning today to this issue of the integrity of our lives before the living God, and along with that, the problem of spiritual hypocrisy and the lives of those who name the name of Christ. Jonathan Edwards identifies hypocrisy as the single most significant danger facing the church, that it's not rank paganism or the hard-heartedness of the lost or the persecution of the saints that stymies the work of the gospel and the progress of the kingdom of God, but it is having the pretense of piety within the household of faith that does the greatest damage, that that is the devil's greatest tool. In his preface to the treatise concerning religious affections, uh, Edwards says this, he says, it is by the mixture of counterfeit religion with true, not discerned and distinguished, that the devil has his greatest advantage against the cause and kingdom of Christ all along hitherto. It is by this means principally that he has prevailed against all revivings of religion that have ever been since the founding of the Christian church. By this, he hurt the cause of Christianity in and after the apostolic age much more than by all the persecutions of both Jews and heathens. The apostles, in all their epistles, show themselves much more concerned concerned at the former mischief, that is with hypocrisy and counterfeit religion, than with the latter. So with that in view, I want to examine this passage today under three simple headings. Number one, what you must beware. Number two, who deserves your fear. And number three, where your hope is found. Number one, what you must beware. This episode opens with this massive crowd. Uh, Luke describes so many thousands of people who have gathered uh, to the point that they are trampling over one another just to get to Jesus. Now that combined with the scene that you have at the very end of chapter 11, if you remember that from last week, where you have the scribes and the Pharisees and they are pressing Christ hard. They are trying to provoke him. They're trying to get him to speak. They're lying in wait for him. They're seeking to catch him and something that he might say. It gives you this picture of a very chaotic scene. There's the the clamor of his antagonists, and then there's just the madness of the crowd, the sheer volume of all of these people who are trying to get to Jesus. Well, it's against that backdrop that Jesus turns to just his disciples. He turns to his, his closest followers, and he begins to speak to them. He says this, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So in the middle of this scene, he has a warning for his people, for his followers. 
A number of things that I, I want to draw out here. First, there's just the danger of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the heart of Christ's concern for his people here in this passage. That kind of attendance to religion where there's no correspondence between our outward attachment to the things of God and the inward condition of the heart. No correspondence between what we say and do and perform on the outside things that are visible to other people, and the inward condition of the heart before the piercing sight of the Lord God. But how does this present itself? How does hypocrisy present itself among professing believers? Well, we saw that it comes in many forms last week as Jesus so strongly castigates the Pharisees. He rebukes them for their externalism. They cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish. Inside, they're full of greed and wickedness. These are men who throw themselves into all kinds of matters concerning what you look like on the outside, to outward behavior, to appearances. They're not concerned with the, uh, the most desperate condition facing every man, which is the, the washing of the heart before God, the need to be cleansed of our sin, that work that only the the Spirit of God can affect on the inside. And when that is in place, when that kind of disparity is at work in a man, it's no surprise that you, you find someone who becomes very adept at the feigning of religious virtue. Jesus said, outwardly, you appear righteous to others, but within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this is the kind of hypocrisy that knows just how to put on a positive uh, spiritual affectation. When the occasion calls for it, when the right person is around, when someone's watching, it knows, what's to, what, it knows what to do. Uh, the Pharisees were men, the Bible tells us, who, who they, they knew that they, they could disfigure their face when a time of fasting was called for. Just on the term of, turn of a dime, they could, they could contort their face to demonstrate to other men what wretches they were. They could make their phylacteries broad. Why? Because they wanted to show to other men just how devoted they were to the word of God. They would stand on street corners and, uh, and pray out loud to, to make a parade, a show of their piety before other men. But you see, in all of these different examples, it's just externalism. It's just empty, vain externalism. Their great desire was to be found holy in the sight of men and not in the sight of God. Similarly, hypocrisy is often found charged with religious formalism, a kind of trusting in the duties of religion and not the kind of confidence that comes from the heart trusting in the righteousness of God, a righteousness that is without 
not something born of my own performance, of my own achievements, a righteousness that doesn't come from looking to the saving promises of God. And Jesus says, we've got to beware of this. We've got to watch out for this in our lives. We need to make sure that we turn to the Lord in a living relationship with him and that we don't turn the faith into a kind of production, the sort of formalism that leads on, that leans on outward forms instead of the heart trusting in the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. You have need only to look at uh, the offering of Cain or think of the tears of Esau or the sacrifice of King Saul or the kiss of Judas or the tithes of Ananias and Sapphira or many other examples to see what a great temptation this is for the people of God to realize you can be a very religious person and still be dead in your trespasses and sins. Jesus said again, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There was the form of religion, but not the power of the Holy Spirit working within the inner man. How many churches could that be said of today? One of the consequences of hypocrisy is that it leads to moralism. It leads to a life where your trust is in what you do and not in the work of Christ. It begins to treat salvation and religion as a kind of self-improvement project. And it can be cloaked in all kinds of orthodox theology. You can know all about justification by faith alone you can adhere to a really good confession of faith and nevertheless spend your life working to weave this web of self-righteousness, never looking to the only kind of righteousness that's acceptable in the sight of God, the righteousness that comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness apart from your works. Paul talks about the Jews his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he says this, I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God. They had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. One of hypocrisy's uh, favorite bedfellows is legalism. In Matthew 15 and verse 1, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus and they say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why do they break the tradition of the elders? You see, their, their authority wasn't the word, their author, authority wasn't the self revelation of God in his word. Their desire wasn't to hold fast to the word of God as God had given it, but their own self-imposed traditions. In fact, even when it came to the word of God, they neglected the heart of God's command, mercy and justice and faithfulness. And so the Lord calls them blind guides. 
they strained out gnats and they swallowed camels. You don't want gnats in your wine, but you sure don't want a camel. These were the kind of men that the, the Pharisees were. Hypocrites have a way of loving the law without loving the one that it points to, without loving the one who came to fulfill the law. And because of that, all of their scrupulousness comes uh, with, with this uh, propensity to be fodder for pride, fodder for religious arrogance. There's no humility. There's no self-abasement. They're self-reliant. They aren't meek. They're not dependent on the grace of God. They aren't uh, awe-stricken at the the mercy and the love of the Lord Jesus. They're not lovers and worshipers of Christ. This is what Jesus is telling us to beware of, beloved. However it presents itself to us, living a life of spiritual hypocrisy means living a double life. It's, in its most egregious cases, it means possessing a counterfeit faith. So we've, we've seen something of how it can present itself, but notice also the nature of its influence. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Hypocrisy, Christ says, works like leaven in the church. You know what leaven is? In dough, it's that invisible, silent, secret thing that you can't see and that yet nevertheless transforms the dough. Last time we were together, we saw Christ say that Pharisaism has this contagious, a corrupting effect in the lives of those that it touches. If you look just back at chapter 11 and verse 44, he says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. He says that it's like this spiritual deadly cancer. It teaches other people how to be pretenders of religion. Well, you say, well, well how is that? How, how is hypocrisy something that teaches other people to be pretenders of religion? Well, because it's nothing but the pretense of religion, hypocrisy does not spill over with love for God and for one another. It dare not confess sin in the presence of others because that would unravel the whole pretense. It will not sacrifice for the good of neighbors. It will not spend and be spent for the sake of souls. That's way too costly. And so it does not promote true and sincere religion. It doesn't teach or foster love for God and for others. It teaches others to to lead a double life. Jesus said in, in verse 52 of the Uh, previous chapter, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. So again, you see the pattern. It's not just your own life that's at stake here. Those that are sitting around you uh, in this room, we have an effect in one direction or another on 
one another's lives before God. And Jesus picks up on this same idea here when he calls hypocrisy love. And he's picking up on this image of the Passover bread from Exodus, where for seven days, Israel was to cleanse out the leaven out of their homes. And if anyone ate what was leavened, they would be cut off from the congregation. Well, spiritual hypocrisy, dear ones, is like this. It is leaven in the church. It spreads like yeast throughout God's people. And bound up in this analogy, as I said, is is this idea that it's not something that's so easily detectable. It works silently. It works secretly. It works subtly in one another's lives. It's not like some of those other uh, sins that that, that stand out and that are obvious to one another. It tends to slip in unawares and take hold of the life of a body of believers. And so we must beware And first and foremost, please hear this today, when we think about uh, paying heed to the warning Christ issues in this text, we must beware ourselves personally, uh, privately, give heed to where we stand, uh, look for the presence of hypocrisy in our own hearts and minds. Notice the, the audience Jesus addresses. He began to say this to his disciples first. So you see the, the, the sphere of hypocrisy's potential influence. He talks to his people and he says, you need to watch out for this in your own hearts. You're not immune from this pitfall. It's to his own people, brothers and sisters, not those enormous crowds, not the, the thousands of thousands, not the scribes and the Pharisees, but those who are genuinely seeking to follow him. Those who are counting the cost, those who are wrestling with what it means to leave all behind and follow hard after the Lord Jesus with all of their hearts, that he issues this warning. And he says, you must constantly be on guard against this influence in your heart. You have to be vigilant, not in the sense of going on a witch hunt without but by looking in the mirror of God's word and examining yourself. Don't scope out those around you. Turn your heart inward. Begin to look at yourself in the mirror of God's word. In the mid-19th century, Horace Greeley was the editor of the New York Tribune. His wife, Mary, was vehemently opposed to the killing of any animal for any reason whatsoever. One day she ran into uh, Margaret Fuller, who was one of the the writers for the newspaper, and they bumped into each other out on the avenue by the, by the newspaper, and she, she, Mary, reached out to shake Margaret's hand, and just as she did, she realized that Margaret was wearing goatskin gloves, and she shrieked, and she said, skin of a beast, skin of a beast. Well, what she hadn't taken into consideration was that she was wearing silk gloves herself, and so Margaret herself decided to shriek in turn, entrails of a worm, entrails of a worm. That's what hypocrisy looks like. 
it is easy to see in someone else. Not so easy to see in ourselves. It's easy to see the spiritual shortcomings in someone else's life. It's much harder to identify them in our own lives. One of the great dangers of listening to a sermon on a text like this is the propensity of our flesh to always be thinking about everyone else out there that needs to hear this. All those other hypocrites. Now why is that impulse so prevalent in our hearts? Is it not perhaps because there is some degree of spiritual hypocrisy In each of us, to put it bluntly, we are hypocrites too. On some level, we do not see the inconsistencies in our own lives, in our own hearts. We don't see the double standards that we possess. We don't see the harshness we subject others to and the the leniency that we allow ourselves. And so when Christ says beware, take that word to heart. Take that word personally at the level of your own soul. Ask the Lord to test you. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. The question here is not whether you will find perfection when you look within, but how you respond to what you discover. How you respond to the sin That is within. Again, from from Edwards, he says that a hypocrite has a false hope and not that sight of his own corruptions which the saint has. For a true Christian, the sins of his heart and practice appear to him in their awful blackness. They look dreadful, and it often appears a very mysterious thing that any grace can be consistent with such corruption. Or should be in such a heart. But a false hope hides corruption, covers it over, and the hypocrite looks clean and bright in his own eyes. You see the contrast? You see the contrast between pride and humility. One hides his sin, the other flees to Christ. He glories in the the mercy and the grace of God. Now look at how Jesus strengthens uh, this word of warning with an additional admonition in verse 2. He says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus says here, in effect, that not only is hypocrisy subtle in its working, but it's useless. It is worthless. It's a worthless enterprise. There's a day when every secret thing will be revealed. All of the things you think are safely hidden away, all the thoughts and intentions of the heart will be dragged out into the light. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, 
who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is the witness of the scriptures. What we do behind closed doors, the people we are when no one else is around, it will all become public. It will all be made manifest. And you can see how comprehensive this this declaration is here. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. And this is true whether good or bad. Paul tells Timothy, the sins of some people are conspicuous, uh, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now what does this mean for men with pharisaical hearts like us? What does that mean for men who will stand before the judgment seat of Christ? The good news of the gospel is that grace is available. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is available to sinners who confess their sin, who confess their spiritual hypocrisy, who come and stand on the mercy and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus found at the cross. He's the only remedy for a hypocritical heart. He is the only one who can purify me of all my vain attempts to cleanse my conscience or to make myself right before the eyes of God. Only Christ can cleanse me. Only he can make me pure within. All of these other isms that we've looked at, they're all false gospels. They're false gospels. They don't have the power to save. They can't make us right before God. So you have what you must beware. Now, second, look at who deserves your fear. This, the, the pressure and the, the cunning of the Pharisees here provides Christ with this very fitting opportunity to talk about the fear of man and the fear of God. If you look at verse 4, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. Now, the ones he is speaking to here are uh, those who have just heard Jesus tell the Pharisees in the chapter just before uh, that he, he would send prophets and apostles, some of whom they, the Pharisees, will kill and persecute. In other words, he's talking about them. He's talking about his apostles and disciples here. So no wonder there is a temptation in place to, to fear. In fact, it would be absurd not to fear were it not for some greater hope. Were it not for some greater glory than the preservation of our earthly lives which is precisely where Jesus takes us here. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. How about that? How about that for pulling the plug on on the threats of men? After that, they don't have anything else that they can do. When we fall prey to the fear of men, you see the application here. 
Whether we're talking about the overt kind of uh, persecution that a martyr faces, or just the kind of hatred and uh, despising that you might face uh, from your friends and your family and those who reject you because of your attachment to the Lord Jesus, Christ is saying here, you overlook the glory of the Christian hope. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Blessed, Jesus said, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But mark in your minds how Christ counsels his people here as we think about the temptation to be filled with dread, to be filled with the apprehension of the world in verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The word hell here is Gehenna. In the Old Testament, it was the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, This is where, if you remember, children were sacrificed uh, to Molech. It was under the reign of King Josiah that uh, that valley was declared unclean, and it was eventually turned into a trash heap. The sacrifices were ended. Eventually, that became an apropos image for this picture of everlasting torment. Christ here is saying God alone has the authority and the power to cast into hell, and we should fear him. We should fear him. But beloved, let this be impressed on your hearts. Jesus does not just tell his disciples here, quit being fearful. He doesn't say, stop your worrying, stop being anxious. Rather, what does he say? He says, your fear is misdirected. Your fear's in the wrong place. The object of your fear isn't to be in man, but in the Lord. So Christ aims to deliver us from lesser fears. He aims to deliver us from lesser fears. You are always going to fear something. That's just another way of talking about worship. God has created us as worshipers. He's created us to to fear. He's created us to, to fear him with a holy, reverent kind of fear. Now, when our hearts are gripped by the fear of man, Jesus says a greater, more powerful sovereign must come and oust the one that we tremble before. And so he commands us in this. Uh, he commands us to, to, to depose the one who may indeed kill the body, but after that have nothing more that they can do, and instead fear the one who dwells on high and has authority to judge the living and the dead. Turn your eyes away from the one who can harm the body and to the one who can say to souls that will never die, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, or come you who are blessed by my Father, 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, we're not done with this thought. Let me direct your attention to verse 6, and I want you to see how he offers you strong encouragement to fear the Lord. Strong encouragement to orient your fear toward the Lord. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? You see what he's saying? Isn't God good? Christ does not command our fear without giving us good cause to fear the Lord. It's like he's saying, yes, you are to walk in the fear of the Lord, but I also want you to know the one that you're called to fear. I want you to know who it is that you are to fear. There's so much to learn from this. First, it's, it's just very instructive to see that his comfort to us is not that there's going to be an absence of hostility, that we will somehow escape affliction or distress or even a martyr's death. He doesn't say, if you will come and if you will fear me, you will never have any trouble in the world. What does he say? Five little birds, the cheapest thing that you could find in the market, are sold for next to nothing. Okay. Now, a denarius is about a day's wages. The word for penny here in the text is a sixteenth of a denarius. So five little birds are sold for two pennies. So you have perhaps an hour's worth of pay. If you worked an eight-hour day, not very much. And yet not one of those sparrows is forgotten before God. The emphasis here is on his sovereignty, his faithfulness over your life. You see the same thing in verse 7. Why? Even the hairs on your head are numbered. Friends, God's knowledge and understanding of your life outpaces anything you can ever possibly imagine. His omniscience is beyond searching out. You cannot comprehend his infinitude. But what lesson is Jesus drawing from this? This is so important to get and yet so easily forgotten, especially when we're in the trenches, especially when we're in the valley and we're the ones now who are walking through uh, that season of trial and affliction. The encouragement here isn't that if you fear the Lord, you won't face those hardships or trials, but that the trials and the hardships that you face will not happen apart from the perfect knowledge and care of your God. They are not somehow outside of his redemptive purposes. So fear not you are of more value than many sparrows. Isn't that wonderful how on the one hand the text says, yes, I tell you, fear him, fear God. And at the same time, it says, fear not. Both are true. 
Don't fear man. Fear God. You are of more value than many sparrows. He's arguing from the the lesser to the greater. If God cares for these sparrows, how much more does he care for you? In other words, no tribulation, no privation, no need is so small that it escapes his knowledge, that it somehow escapes his providential care. Now, just consider this in light of what it said in verses 2 and 3. The same truth that makes the hypocrite tremble. God's knowledge of all things. This idea that all things, every secret thing is going to be exposed. That truth that makes the hypocrite tremble is a balm and a comfort to his children. Now that's not going to answer all of your questions. It's not going to resolve all of your whys, but it does mean that you can lean on his everlasting arms. It does mean that you are ultimately safe and secure from all alarms. The doctrine of God, this knowledge of his omniscience and sovereignty is intensely practical. God is not aloof. He is not unaware of your trials and circumstances. He is in fact ordering your footsteps for your good. For those that love him and are called according to his purposes, God knows what he's doing in your life, beloved. You can trust him. All things flow from his providence and his love. They're evidence of his gracious purposes for your life. Your job is to respond by fearing him, by loving him, by serving him, trusting in him. Finally, where our hope is found. Verse 8, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men The Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now what is the connection of this section to what has just come before? For the disciples, they are facing the prospect of having men stand over them with the sword of losing their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. In this context, Jesus offers, this, offers them this hope that acknowledging him before the world brings with it this promise that he will acknowledge them before the angels of God. He will confess them before the heavenly hosts. In Revelation 3 and verse 5, Jesus says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Who's the one who conquers? It's the one who confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart God raised him from the dead. It's the one who bows his knee at the lordship 
of Jesus Christ and by his grace endures that he might also reign with him. That's where our hope is found, in a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and no other place. Now, it's inescapable, and you've already seen it, standing beside that promise is a threat, a warning that denying Christ before men will lead to his denial of us before the angels of God. Christ goes on to say, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. There are a few texts in the Bible that have caused as much angst and concern as this one. What is sometimes referred to as the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is very important when we are seeking to understand a difficult passage like this that we begin by looking at what is most clear in the Scriptures. So with that in mind, first I just want you to notice great assurance. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Let those words ring in your ears for a moment. Will be forgiven. So if you look back at your past life before you knew Christ and you think upon those times with great sorrow and you think about all of the the ways that you hated Christ and sinned against him, take encouragement from this. You will be forgiven. Paul did the same. He said, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. You may rightfully mourn. You might look back and you, you might weep at the way that you spurned the Lord Jesus. But you can also look back at the same with a, an immense sense of gratitude because you know those sins have been nailed to the tree. You know that they are under the blood They are forgiven. There is no record of debt standing against you anymore because you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Paul says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. As great a sinner as I am, how much greater is his grace toward me? Paul was a blasphemer, and he was forgiven. What about Peter? Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times, and he was forgiven. He was restored. He repented of his sins. He acknowledged the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that leaves us with this question, why the distinction between blaspheming the Son and blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Again, Go to what is clear. I want to read to you what the parallel text says from Mark uh, chapter 3 and verse 28. 
Mark chapter 3 and verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. You see how this sheds light on the passage at hand. In fact, it brings us back to what we saw in the immediate context in Luke chapter 11. Now, this has been six weeks or so ago for us, but for the disciples hearing these words in Luke 12, it is in the immediate context of what they've heard from the mouth of Christ. Jesus had just cast out that demon from the man who was mute, and some of those around them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, blaspheming the spirit in this context was essentially to attribute the work of Christ to the devil. It was to place Jesus in league with Satan and in that way was to deny everything central to his person, his divinity, his glory, his righteousness, but also his work, his power to save, to deliver us from the domain of darkness, to transfer us into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Which means, friends, that if you believe what Jesus says of himself, for example, in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus goes and he opens that great Isaiah scroll and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. If you believe Jesus took on flesh and blood to redeem mankind and you're trusting in his righteousness as we have talked about today for the forgiveness of your sins, if you're prepared to confess, for example, uh, what the scripture says, that when Jesus went out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, that he did so full of the Holy Spirit, If your faith is in his finished work on the cross, you believe the witness of God's word that it was the spirit of God who raised him from the dead. You do not need to live in fear that you have somehow committed the unpardonable sin. You don't need to live in fear. Those who are most concerned with committing the unpardonable sin are exactly the kind of people Jesus is not addressing in this text. Now, on the other hand, a good and right concern to make sure that we rightfully interpret and biblically qualify the application of this text ought not to drain the warning of its force. There is a reason This is a harrowing text. And if it doesn't catch our attention, something's wrong. Our hearts are dangerously numb. This passage is aimed precisely at those who know that Christ has come. They know that the Spirit was upon him in his earthly ministry. They know that he was vindicated by the Spirit 
at the resurrection and have nevertheless entrenched themselves in stubborn unbelief. And that was the difference between Peter's denials and Judas's denial. Peter repented. Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Judas denied Christ, and he never turned back. He never turned back. And it is to men in that position, passages like Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29 speak so clearly. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Unless we miss the clearest application, this is addressed to sinners who have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus, who have sat under the preaching of God's word, who have heard the promises of Christ's mercy and forgiveness, who know that the Spirit of God was with the Son of God to save and nevertheless fully and finally reject him. They renounce him to the end. If you've not believed on Christ, today is the day of salvation. Believe on him. Trust in him. You know the power of his arm. You know the power of his gospel. He is here to, to heal and redeem and to forgive. Believe on him. He will cleanse you. In verse 11, the antagonism of the world. Uh, this seems to anticipate, again, this resistance Christ's followers can expect to face while they're in the world, which in turn uh, anticipates this real concern about what they're going to say, how they're going to respond when they're brought before magistrates, for example. And so Jesus says this, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This word has a twofold purpose. First, there's the immediate assurance that the Spirit will be with them as they go, that He will give them the words that they need to say. They don't need to be anxious. Even, though, even more than that, though, it's as if Jesus is saying in, in times like this, in times when your, your faith is tested, you think, well, I might be tempted to deny him, God's gracious provision will be there with you to fortify your faith. He is able to keep you from falling, and he will. What a Savior we have. What a Savior we have. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we pray today that you would make this a living word to our hearts. Lord, your, your word is life, but not without the, the power of the Holy Spirit impressing it upon our hearts. Lord, we, we know it, we understand it in many respects, but 
as we have seen, unless you come and do a work within, within our hearts, we, we can still be dead souls. Lord, we can be uh, hypocrites. We can be pretenders of religion. And so we ask that you would do a work within us. Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to do his bidding in our hearts. We, we ask that we would be dead to sin and alive to you in Christ Jesus. Lord, I, I pray for this, your body. I pray that you would save us from the kind of religion that's outward alone. Lord, that we would have a kind of holy intolerance for this way of living. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to discern those seeds of hypocrisy that are already present, even in our own hearts, and to hate and forsake them. Lord, deliver us from the evil of false religion, from the uselessness of trusting in all of those outward forms. We want to have a growing, vibrant, living faith. And so give us humble hearts, Lord. Give us a sense of uh, dependence on you. Lord, we pray that we would have a holy fear of your name, of your power and authority, your right to judge the living and the dead. Thank you, God, for the ways that you continue to prove your faithfulness and love for us. Lord, we bless your name. We ask all of this in the name of your Son. Amen.